Welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Malarkey Podcast, brought to you by our sponsor, Papa Podcasting, located here in Ottawa, Ontario. Check them out at papapodcasting.ca. My name is Hartley Parent, and joining me, as always, is your co-host, Kyle Turk. Is marketing a myth? Is it manipulation? Do they just want my money? Well, the simple answer is probably money does make the world go round. Uh, But there's also another element to the industry, and just as it is with any industry, there's always a few bad apples. But somewhere in that orchard of ideals is the ever-growing tree of integrity. Or as we like to call it, the no-bullshit tree. As we all know, confidence is key, but knowledge is power, and truth tends to stem from knowledge. However, there's a fine line between being knowledgeable and being confident, and this is where the bullshit comes into play. There's so many out there who think they know what they're talking about, and if they're confident enough in what they're telling you, you might actually end up believing them. However, just as it applies to almost every facet of life, once the bullshit is sold, it's hard to get a refund. Our goal here on the Marketing Malarkey Podcast is to siphon the facts through the fiction to help you determine for yourself the truth about marketing and some of the key trending topics. And today's topic, we're going to be talking about programmatic advertising. And in joining us on the show today is Colin Jacobson. He's from a company called Arlene, based out of New York, New York. Welcome to the show, Colin. Great to have you on. Hey. Awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, as we do on every show, uh, we talk about a little bit of a uh, little, little banter that Colin and I do. And, and we get our guests here to kind of just talk about whatever is trending in the industry or you know, certain newsworthy uh, topics that we think are good to bring up. A big thing that's happening here in here in Canada is, and I mean, all across the world is, you know, trying to climate. We're trying to deal with, you know, a lot of climate issues uh, and, and find, you know, sustainable ways to keep calm and carry on. One of those big things uh, that we're working on is eliminating single-use plastics. And I wanted to bring this up today because I was out at Harvey's recently getting a delicious cheeseburger. Harvey's does make your hamburger a beautiful thing. So they've switched out their plastic straws for paper straws, which could be a good solution. That's fine. Fine. That's, you know, that that's one way of, of, of getting rid of the plastic. But then they turned around and you know, those, when you're, when you're pumping out your ketchup um, out of those industrial ketchup, uh, what's the word I'm looking pumps. for? Pumps. Ketchup pumps. Ketchup pumps. Yeah. yeah. Pump, pump. Ketchup pumps. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they took out their their paper little ramekin uh, dishes that you know you know you would put the ketchup in, and they replaced it with plastic, which to me just seems like you're, you've 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 taken the leap into trying to eliminate your plastic straws by buying by investing in paper straws and, and rolling those out to to you know your franchises across the country, but then you've taken a step back. And you've replaced your paper ramekins with plastic ones. Just to me, it just it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And I don't know if they really thought about that or if there was, you know, maybe some sort of siloed non-communication happening within, you know, Harvey's head office somewhere. And one guy said, you know, these would be a great idea. We should get these paper straws out. And then somebody on the other side of the company is thinking, oh, you know, these paper ramekins are costing us too much money. Let's find a way to mass produce some plastic ones. And it's like, I don't know what happened here. Somewhere breakdown of communication. So it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's, there's a lot of companies. I mean, whether it's these like Kyle's drinking out of uh, drinking some water from a. It's a, yeah. Flow water. Flow water. Yeah, it's a, a form of boxed water. Boxed but, water. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a company that I think uses sustainability in a great uh, and they have a long-term strategy, and it's part of their entire brand, right? So sustainability is a big piece of their brand. 
Uh, going back to Harvey's, I think you'll see, you know, things like that where getting rid of the plastic straws was probably a marketing or PR play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the company itself probably doesn't have a full sustainability plan. They probably don't have a long-term strategy. Now, maybe they do, but, you know, maybe they're not authentic and really care about it. It was most likely, hey, companies are starting to get rid of straws. It's making some buzz uh, in the media. Let's get rid of ours. And then the next move they make is they introduce more plastic because it's not really ingrained into the culture of the company. Yeah, no, you probably nailed um, it there. So that's why, you know, at Flow, even their caps uh, are plant-based. Uh, I believe, I don't know, I could be have the fact wrong, I think it's like 90% recyclable, the, the plastic caps that they use because they're plant-based. Okay. Um, even the delivery vehicles are the BMW electric ones. I don't even know what they're called. Uh, Oh but, yeah, yeah. Just whatever BMW's yeah. electric vehicle is, yeah, yeah. But so they've they've looked at all different angles exactly. of the inter, of the organization and really trying to. Yeah, so the whole brand itself represents sustainability. Okay. Um. So there are a lot of companies that'll just hop on that marketing bandwagon. They see somebody do something, and they they hop on. Yeah. No, they think it's a it's it's just. I mean, it, whether it's publicity or whatever, you know, just trying to jump on, and you know, they're not really looking at the bigger picture, or maybe they don't really care about. The overall, you know, sustainability as 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 a focal point for you know generations to come. It's just you know what can we do that makes us maybe not look as shitty for the yeah. time being. Yeah, basically. You know? <laughs> um, do you uh, what's what what is the climate look there in uh, in New York as far as uh, plastic re re cutting down on plastic use? Is that is that a conversation people are having there? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think there there's a lot of businesses which are starting to have more of the sustainable practices. And, you know, even some of the big corporations here in New York, it's kind of what you mentioned, a lot of their vendor partners and, you know, kind of like across the full stack of the company, they're partnering with the right people and making the right decisions in that sense. I guess from my perspective, you know, I, I definitely think that it's moving in the right direction. I think there's a, a ton of opportunities in the sustainable industry right now. And, you know, I think that we haven't even really gotten to the, the cusp of what that industry can get to. Yeah. Um, I will say with that, though, I hate those paper straws. <laughs> I, I have trouble drinking out of them. I feel like halfway through my beverage, I, I'm not able to drink through it anymore. So I'm definitely looking for some kind of alternative solution to that. We were just talking about that, actually. Yeah. For me, if I see they got paper straws, I just don't use a straw. Yeah. And I'll drink my whatever drink it is with no straw. Yeah. You're yeah. you're just all growing up now. Yeah. Kyle doesn't need a straw anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I, I'm kind of in the same boat. And, you know, I saw that there's some places they do kind of like the, the metal straw situation. Yeah. I just I don't know how they, they clean in that. You know, it's you know, I, I think that there's like bacteria and stuff like that living in there. So I also have trouble drinking out of those. <laughs> what is perceived as an easy solution is actually probably creating more issues for people. Do I, do I even want to drink out of a straw anymore? And, and I hear you with those metal straws. So my wife, she's big on this, you know, sustainability movement. And there's a, there's a local store here in Ottawa called Terra 20 and they manufacture basically everything is, is organic and reusable recycled material, the whole store. Like that's, that is their whole MO and they sell uh, these metal straws and she she enjoys drinking them or drinking if we were gonna have a beverage at home and, and whatever and we need a straw for it then you know there we go with the, the the metal straw so if we get a a milkshake from McDonald's or wherever we won't you know we'll just not bring a straw home with us we'll use the metal straws at home but then my issue with the, the metal ones is they get super cold 
And it's, it's like, you know, in, in the wintertime, you're not going to lick a metal pole because your tongue's going to get stuck <laughs> to it. Well, now the same thing is happening, but now I'm just carrying this around with me. So I've got this pole in my, my cold beverage. And I find it's just my, my lips get, they almost get sore from drinking it. So again, I don't know, I don't know what the solution is there because I, I agree with you 100% Colin when, when I'm drinking out of uh, with a paper straw, especially for something like a milkshake, it is just useless. Like yeah. there must be some sort of other solution here. That, so, you know. so Harley, my mom bought yeah. for my kids. Okay. Um, they're rubber or silicone. I'm not sure what they are, but they're dishwasher safe. And that's what our kids use at home. And they love them. They keep clean. Uh, super easy to chuck them in the dishwasher. Okay. Um, a potential solution to your yeah. metal straw issue. Is there something cool like a dinosaur on it? Or uh, they're they just come in cool colors. Cool you know, colors. Okay. Bright. Cool. Bright good green. Bright pink. Anything. Yeah. Anything. All all the colors of the rainbow. I'm I'm pretty good with. I'm actually colorblind. So really, hey, it's it's even better. So anything. But yeah. I'll uh, I'll ask my mom. Yeah. Mom please. listens to the podcast. So Excellent. mom, when you hear this, yeah, Hartley needs a straw. Okay, Mrs. Turk. We yeah. we we need some some. I I need some straws. Some better straws. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, there was actually uh, another company uh, out in Vancouver. They uh, they hit the news a little while ago. There was a bit of uh, talk. So this 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 it was a small grocery store chain somewhere in Vancouver, and um, they were kind of calling out their customers, shaming their customers for buying plastic bags. And what they did was they actually wrote these crazy like embarrassing slogans on them. And I, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head exactly, you know, specifics, but they were quite embarrassing in the sense that you would think that the customers wouldn't be interested in buying the bags. But it actually completely backfired on them and they sold out of these bags. And now their their customers are actually asking if you can make more of them. So <laughs> just one kind of example of, of somebody trying to, you know, do do good and then they, they completely flip fl- flips around on them. But then if that's the case, then you know, why, why even make them? Like, just, just give them paper bags. If instead of shaming your customers, just, you know, just don't give them plastic bags. It's, and to me, it's simple. It's not simple. I mean, obviously we've been using plastic for so long now it's, it's indated into every aspect of life almost, you know, it's hard to use any, anything anymore without some sort of plastic component to it. So, you know, it's going to be a huge overhaul getting rid of the plastic, you know, I mean, but just as anything in life, if, if, if you don't make it, if you don't manufacture it, then the demand is, you know, the die dies off, right? If there, if you, if you cut off the demand for it, then yeah, they could use paper bags with cool slogans about how cool it is to use paper bags. Yeah, there maybe, we go. Maybe that would flip the switch. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing jumping in here really quickly is you take a look at the energy industry right now. You know, you have a lot of kind of like traditional people that were pro like coal industry, pro kind of like oil and gas industry out there and stuff like that. And now that you have some some new kind of like alternative fuels and alternative uh, energy methods out there, you're quickly seeing that these are massive industries, you know, and these are industries that they can hire the same people from the coal industries. They can, you know, have a lot of things that are similar um, in terms of developing the industries, in terms of fueling different kinds of, uh, you know, like cars and airplanes and stuff like that out there. So I think that, you know, there is kind of like this negative perception that's associated with it sometimes, but in the end, there's there's huge opportunities with it. And I think that, you know, again, we're just we're at the beginning of this revolution right now. And I think there's a lot more that's going to happen with it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, even five, 10 years down the road, we'll have completely different conversations around it. And people will be looking, you know, for what is the best way. And, and you know, all these big, whether it's car manufacturers or, you know, other other 
big, you know, Fortune 500 industries are going to, that's, that's going to be the whole MO is just everything is going to go green, right? So I think we're on the, we're on the right, uh, on the right track, as it were. Um, so Colin, Colin works in um, programmatic advertising. And if you want to give our listeners a little breakdown as well as ourselves, what exactly does programmatic advertising entail? What's, what is it? Sure. So programmatic advertising is basically an automated system for purchasing and selling advertisements out there. So, you know, you have thousands of advertisers, you have thousands of publishers out there. And when I say publishers, I'm talking anyone from like an app developer to a website out there to basically any place that you could be putting advertisements. And so traditionally, you know, kind of the way that you've looked at advertising is very much based off of insertion orders where those would basically be an advertiser goes to a publisher. They agree that they're going to put X amount of impressions or advertisements or however, you know, there'll, there'll be some type of metric associated with that. They'll, they'll come to an agreement with it, and then they'll work with the publisher to essentially serve all those advertisements on there. Uh, lots of times, it was a very custom solution. It'd be something that the publisher would have to, to bake into on their website or their app or whatever that's going to be. And it was just a bit of a cumbersome process, um, you know, especially as you have a lot of uh, app developers that don't have sales teams out there or people that are necessarily familiar with the ad tech industry. So programmatic advertising basically automates this entire system. So it enables you, if you're a publisher out there, you can connect into various third-party uh, platforms and you can basically work with them to automatically source advertisements for your app or I guess when, for, your, for your publisher or your app or website or wherever it's going to be. And it basically aggregates the advertisers and then it serves them based off of how you want to target certain users. And if you want to hit, you know, if there's certain devices you want to hit or certain regions you want to hit, or you know, various different types of targets on there. Essentially, automating that process and making it super easy for advertisers to access that inventory, and they create an auction around it. So basically, you know, within 200 milliseconds, you could have multiple advertisers which are essentially submitting bids to be serving their advertisements within an app or a website or, or uh, whatever the publisher is going to be. Um, you know, you still can run kind of the direct one-to-one type relationships in there, and you can have private marketplaces and stuff like that. But, you know, the end all of programmatic advertising is, is basically creating a marketplace for publishers and advertisers to efficiently transact using automated platforms. Okay. So would that be, is that what Google AdWords is? Is it yeah, a- so, you know, Google definitely has uh, elements of it, uh, you know, Facebook and, you know, kind of most of the, the major people out there, they, they have some type of uh, programmatic technology behind it, you know, the, the LinkedIn's of the world. And, you know, a lot of this tech, it's being used not only to, you know, let's say Facebook or LinkedIn, you know, they're using their programmatic technology to essentially serve their internal advertisements. But then they're also working with third party companies where they'll have advertiser relationships, which you know, they might not just want to serve on LinkedIn specifically. They might want to serve on LinkedIn plus, you know, a network of other apps, you know, so they'll work with their advertiser, advertisers to extend those campaigns beyond their apps. And then uh, similarly, they, you know, they might have direct advertiser relationships internally. So they'll maintain those relationships and they'll have sales and BD teams, which are maintaining those relationships. But then they'll also have advertisers that they're, they're getting from pro- programmatic technology out there. So an example, I guess you mentioned LinkedIn. So if I'm creating a LinkedIn ad uh, and I click on the checkbox that says LinkedIn audience expansion, 
Uh, and it doesn't really tell you what it is, but it says it will serve your ad where other uh, likely people of your targeted profile are. Is that uh, what it's doing behind the scenes is using programmatic advertising to serve your advertisement on other platforms? Yeah, so they've, they've partnered with some third-party companies. They're basically plugging their technology into that. They're sourcing other apps or other advertisers and basically extending their campaigns that way or getting new types of diverse, unique uh, advertisers to be creating a more competitive market within their internal platforms like that and basically getting what's called a CPM. And the CPM is basically the cost for every 1,000 impressions. They're trying to maximize the CPM and you know basically – get as much money from that as they can. Yeah, I always uncheck that box just because I, I like to make sure it stays exactly where I know it's going to be and where exactly where I want it. Not that I don't trust LinkedIn, but just mentally myself. Yeah, no, so it just gives it more opportunity to, to be seen, obviously, across different different mm-hmm. platforms, right? So Yeah, theoretically, if you are checking that box, you know, they're basically, they're taking their data targeting and they're taking their ad campaigns and everything like that. And they're basically... You know, if they're running a campaign with you, they're trying to find the most efficient places for you to serve those advertisements at the cheapest possible prices. Because uh, obviously, you as an advertiser, you're trying to get the lowest possible CPM that you could possibly get. Whereas a publisher, they're trying to get the highest possible CPM that they can get. So, you know, that tech is basically, you know, they'll, they'll have some kind of algorithmic bidding technology behind that, where they're basically taking data targeting. They, they know what your device ID is, so they're able to basically track whether you're on the LinkedIn app or whether you're on some other third-party app out there. And then they're basically able to use that information to come up with a bid price behind that and then come up with a, the most effective uh, buying mechanism. Mm-hmm. So yourself and your company, Arlene, where do you guys come into the fold? Yeah, so I guess you know I'll give you a little bit of background about myself and kind of how I got to this position right now. So I was with a company called Mopub beforehand. And so Mopub was basically the original in-app programmatic advertising solution out there. Um, it was it was a publisher-first platform that was also working with a bunch of uh, ad networks and also demand-side platforms in their RTB marketplace, which is essentially their real-time bidding marketplace out there. I was an early member on the Mopub team. I was, I think, employee number 60 or something like that, and... At that point, Mopub had raised about $18 million with the business. They, they had pretty good revenue coming through, um, starting to sign some pretty good partnerships with uh, publishers out there and also some pretty big uh, advertising partners. And I worked there for about six months, and then Twitter came through, and they bought Mopub. It was a $350 million acquisition, pretty big acquisition. And it was essentially how, you know, kind of what you mentioned, how you, you look at these different platforms. There's a, a check mark where they can extend their audiences to different uh app developers and stuff like that out there. Mopub was basically that tech to the Twitter team. So Twitter was working with, you know, they're doing promoted tweets and, you know, other kind of like promoted offerings within the, the Twitter owned and operated app. Mopub basically gave Twitter the ability to open up to about 50,000 uh, apps. And then we also worked with uh, 180 demand side platforms, which those are programmatic buying technologies, which basically aggregate advertisers out there and then facilitate those purchasing on uh, app inventory, basically. So anyways, I came in this, I was doing publisher partnerships. Um, so specifically, I was doing East Coast publisher partnerships, 
working with kind of like indie app developers and also working with like big media companies are very uh, New York centric. You know, basically just working with a wide range of people out there. The Twitter acquisition happened. You know, I continued to work on the the Mopub team within within the Twitter organization. Basically, made my way through the ranks. Eventually, ended up in a senior account director position over there. I was still doing publisher partnerships. I'd say it was a little bit more of a focus on the newer part of the business. So, working with our BD team, making sure that you know we were bringing in the right publishers to work with us, making sure that they were putting the right placements into their app, making sure that they were using best practices. I was working with a couple account managers in the business, so they were helping me with like technical troubleshooting behind this. They were doing like day-to-day optimizations and meetings with these publishers out there. And then I was also basically working on new business for the Latin American market. So I was working not only with uh, publisher partners down there, but also strategic uh, demand-side platform partners, uh, ad networks down there, agencies, and just basically trying to build up that whole portion of the business. Um, you know, it was a very amazing position. I, you know, I think that the Mopub, it's definitely the best position I've ever had in my life. I spent over, it was, I was reaching around my five-year mark there, and I just was really starting to get a bit uh, complacent in the position. I was just, you know, I was, I was dealing with the same publishers constantly, even the Latin American business. It just, I did a few trips down there, and, it, you know, it was amazing being able to go down there and meet with people, but it just... The trips kind of turned into like a Groundhog's Day kind of situation where I was just going down there, meeting with the same people, going to the same restaurants, going to the same coffee shops, basically. You know, I even recognized some of the same uh, Uber drivers that I had down there. And it just, you know, I was just at a point where, you know, I was uh, I was 29 years old back then. I was looking to do something a little bit different, take a risk. I, I wasn't like married or anything with my life right now or uh, back then. And was basically just like, you know, if there was an opportunity to do something, this is the time to do something. So I started talking. I, I reconnected with uh, one of my buddies. He, we, we went to university together, and he was kind of like the traditional New York like investment banker kind of person who, you know, he was doing uh, M&A investment banking from one of the big investment banks in New York. But then he did that for a few years, and he was kind of like, you know what? He was also kind of complacent with that. He went a little bit of a different route. He actually was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to go down to Medellin, Colombia, and I'm going to start doing angel investing down here and start working for uh, startup companies, basically. And keep in mind, this is like a six foot four redheaded Irish person from Western Pennsylvania, you know? So he moved down to Medellin, Colombia. He opened up a nightclub down there. He also opened up a Peruvian restaurant, kind of like a fast casual kind of restaurant down there. And was just, you know, he ended up working for a micro venture capital company for a little bit down there too. He basically, I, I reconnected with him when he was back in New York, and we both started talking about how we wanted to do something. At that point, he was looking to move back to New York or somewhere in the U.S. on market. And yeah, you know, just started talking, started like planting seed. We were both very much interested in the ad tech industry, interested in building out marketplaces and. Specifically, had our, had our eyes on kind of like nascent types of ecosystems that existed within ad tech. So, you know, I, I was still working at Twitter back then, but it just it quickly became apparent that, you know, this is something that I really just wanted to focus on this as like a full time position. And, you know, I, we didn't even have like what our business plan was or anything like that at that point. I wanted to take a little bit of time off from Twitter and then just kind of like focus on putting together the strategy behind this, do some market research and kind of just like you know, see what goes into to building a business. So I quit Twitter. This is about a little bit over a year ago. And, you know, the, the two of us, we continued to talk about ideas out there. 
we actually, we pretty quickly, we put together kind of like a agency type model where we basically, for lack of better words, we put together a mobile trading desk, which that's basically like a fancy way of saying that we ran some mobile campaigns for some advertisers out there and basically arbitrage those campaigns across a few different third-party ad techs. Use that to start like getting a little bit of money, starting to t basically take that money and put it into a bank account that we would use to ultimately start our business with. And then started to do some more research. And, you know, one thing that consistently came up and we consistently geeked out about was this extended reality market out there. Um, so this included like augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, even like elements of the esports industry and basically this whole 3D universe that was, that was starting to pop up. And started to do a little bit of market research behind it. We quickly we saw that there wasn't really a huge advertising market for, for AR VR specifically, but we did see that it was increasing super rapidly. So it was, you know, basically two X in year over year. And, you know, this year, 2019, it's pacing to hit around uh, the 1 billion mark, wow. which from a total addressable market point of view, isn't that big of a market. But when you look at, you know, two years ago, it was basically a $180 million market. You know, we're, we're definitely seeing some, some pretty good growth with it. And then we were also, we were, we were attracted that, you know, in addition to that kind of 1 billion uh, opportunity out there, there was also other ways to essentially mitigate risk going to market. Um, so, you know, as opposed to focusing on in-app, also doing both in-app and the mobile website of everything, there was, you know, we could also basically take 2D advertisements and put those into 3D environments. So you already had, you know, advertisers and demand side platforms and, you know, agencies and stuff like that, which had those types of assets out there, which we can immediately start to put in there. And then we also had the opportunity to start putting more of a 3D type placements into 2D environments. So what I mean by that is, you know, imagine kind of like your tr traditional 300 by 250 or traditional uh, advertisement that you see a, in an application. You know, we can basically add that so that you can click on an ad like that. And it will pull up more of like a full screen, whether a camera enabled type perspective in there or more of like a virtual reality type perspective in that. And so, you know, that represented a huge market because we could basically work with any type of publisher out there that was interested in using these types of advertisements in there. So anyways, you know, we started working on that. We started raising some money with the business. You know, we ended up we raised about 250K with the business. You know, mostly raising from uh, angel investors that were strategically based out of uh, the New York market. Most of them are ad tech focused. There was a couple investment bankers that put some money into the business. Most importantly, our lead investor were the guys over at Math Capital. And Math Capital is basically they're an ad tech focused early stage venture capital company. And they were working with they're basically Media Maths uh, venture group. And Media Maths are pretty big. Um, advertising technology company out there. So we got them to put an investment into the business and that was, that was a pretty, a pretty huge job win um, just because they're, they're well connected and you know, it's just ad tech actually isn't like a super hot industry right now. So it was nice to have one of the, the bigger investors put their money into our business. And yeah, you know, from there really just tried to scale the business from a technical point of view. You know, I'm uh, definitely not a technical person. I come from a BD partnerships, client services point of view. Uh, my partners, you know, kind of, as I mentioned, more of an investment banker. So we had to get a technical co-founder in the business. We were lucky enough to, to locate one that was based out of the New York market. And we had some, uh, he was a full stack engineer that worked at an augmented reality company beforehand. 
And then we augmented the team with, we have three people that are working out of uh, Medellin, Colombia. And my one business partner was very good for getting us a connection down there. There's actually a second venture capital company that was based out of the Colombian market that put investment into our business. And yeah, you know, I've been really working on the alpha version of our product right now. We're about a week and a half from going to market right now. Um, so we have kind of like initial publishers, initial advertisers that we're going to be working with. And then from there, using that to, to raise some more money and then really hit the market with a little bit more. So, yeah, you know, I, you know, I think that I've definitely been speaking a lot right here, but, um, <laughs> you know, good, I, man. with, with uh, the whole like, XR market, you know, there's tons of opportunities in terms of like taking what we learn from programmatic and taking that to a new type of uh, ad placement out there. I think that, you know, we, we can build it off the top of what's called the open RTB specification, which is basically, it's a specification that every company doing programmatic advertising is using right now, basically so that all the tech can like talk to each other. So we've been building off the top of that, but it's also given us the opportunity to kind of uncover some new types of uh, analytics and computer vision targeting and, you know, certain elements that are, that are unique to this industry right now that we hope to continue to, to build upon. Yeah. No, that's 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 incredible, and it's funny you say you're not a technical person, but you could fool us. <laughs> yeah. When you said that, Hartley and I both looked at each other like, oh, I don't know. He sounds yeah, he's pretty. Like, he knows what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, definitely. maybe that's the well, BD guy in you. You know, it, it's interesting because you know I was so partnerships focused beforehand, but you know, Mopub was good in the sense that you know working in client services and kind of like the BD point of view over there. You know, you. It still was a very technical position in that, you know, you're, you're working with publishers to do SDK integrations. You're working with them to see, you know, what kind of adapters work with the partners that they currently work with, you know, helping to kind of like configure their JavaScript tags in the system and stuff like that. You know, we're in, I was just consistently working with our, our technical account manager and like our solutions engineering team and even like our product management team, you know, to like interview the publishers that we were working with to make sure that, you know, kind of what we were putting out in the market was working correctly and all that. So, you know, I definitely got some of that technical experience over there. Now working on this new business, you know, I, I, I've become significantly more technical in that sense just because on a daily basis, I'm just working hand in hand with our engineering team. I had to do kind of like the product management work behind it. So I had to do all the mock-ups behind this and translate it over to Envision and kind of like do the UX work behind it. And then work with our technical team to do the architecture behind this and then, you know, kind of put a agile development system into place where, you know, we have sprint cycles and I've been the scrum master in some of the meetings and kind of just doing the project management behind that, complicating that a little bit more, having the team based out of Medellin, Columbia, you know, so basically managing an international team from from my apartment. And then, you know, at, at Mopup, too, I never really had any experience doing people management. But this, you know, recently has been so much people management that, that I've been working on with this and just kind of like making sure that we're implementing the right best practices with the business, getting like a OKR system and, you know, kind of like a milestone project driven basis that we're working off of right now and, you know, pushing the team enough, you know, we can hit our deadlines and go to market and all that, but, you know, also not trying to, to burn them out. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds like a lot. Yeah, I I gotta ask just because you've mentioned Medellin uh, quite a few times now. Where was was your business partner a huge Entourage fan back in the day, and that's why he <laughs> ended up uh, moving there? I do think that he he did watch it a bunch. You know what was interesting enough is 
when we were back at university, actually our, our friend group back there, there was a ton of Latin American people in it. So we were friends with a few Colombian people, a few Peruvian people, and a lot of people from down there. So I think actually his initial decision to go down there was just based off of his, the, the group of friends that we hung, hung out with and then basically being like, you should definitely go down there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. You you said I got to ask, and I thought you were going to ask, isn't isn't that like Escobar territory? So, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't even think about Entourage. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a big Entourage fan. Yeah, no, it's a good. We have a lot of like tech companies, which there's a ton of engineers down there. And, you know, I think that a lot of people have been outsourcing to Eastern European places and like the APAC market and, you know, those parts of the world basically. But Latin America is relatively untapped from a, from an outsourcing point of view. So we've been able to get really quali- good quality engineers down there for pretty cheap. Yeah, no, that's that's makes sense. I mean, that's it's a good uh, a little bit of interesting insight into into that that side of it because you know, I mean, where where else do you go? You know, and and obviously there's just smart people all over the world. Why aren't we you know utilizing people in in South America, right? It's, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the, the most important thing is, you know, it's, it's important to have a guy in your team that this is kind of like co-checking them and managing them from like a technical point of view, because I think that if I was personally doing the code checks and stuff like that, there would be, I would miss a ton of stuff in there. Whereas we have the, the technical co-founder in the business. So he's able to make sure that they're really doing the right things. And, you know, when they tell us a ticket's going to take 48 hours, he can kind of like double check and make sure that, you know, it's not actually a two-hour ticket that they're just like telling us it's going to take that long, and yeah. So just being able to to have those like checks and balances. Nice. A little off topic, but a little bit back on what you were talking about. Uh, you mentioned augmented reality and virtual reality. Is there an example of one that you think uh, that you've come across, whether you guys created it or you've just seen in the marketplace, that you think was the best use of augmented reality or virtual reality that you've seen? Yeah. So, I mean, right now it's an interesting market out there and you have a lot of companies which are putting huge investments into content creation on this front right now. So magically, if they put millions towards investing into like potential publishers out there, you know, I think from our perspective, you know, we're, we're building this company as a vertical agnostic company so that we can work with like pretty much any type of publisher, any type of advertiser. We're basically just the, the tech that sits in between and we, we take a cut based off of everything. So really for us, it's the volatility that matters the most. But that being said, I'd say right now for augmented reality, the gaming market is just, it's a huge market right now in terms of, you know, that's what's kind of like creating a captive audience with users out there, incentivizing them to keep like playing these apps out here. Like you saw the Pokemon app a couple of years ago, you know, that, that was a pretty huge uh, app to hit the market. I would, I would argue that that's not even like traditional augmented reality. There's, there's a lot more stuff that's happening with it right now that just in terms of kind of like the spatial processing and the, you know, kind of where the objects are appearing and stuff like that. It's the, the market's really progressed significantly recently. Yeah. You know, the, the gaming apps out there, they're pretty huge, you know, so there's a couple kind of like charades type apps out there where you can like draw 3d type images and kind of like go back and forth with your friends. Um, you know, there's angry birds. They came out with a augmented reality app recently where, you know, it's basically playing Angry Birds, but in like a 3D universe through your camera perspective, um, you know, so you could have like knocking over things that are sitting on your kitchen table, like 10 feet away from you and stuff like that, basically. From like a utility point of view, you know, you get a lot of kind of like measurement apps out there. 
you get a lot of like previewing what like Ikea furniture looks like in your apartment and stuff like that, which, you know, we're not going to be putting advertisements into the Ikea app, but who knows, maybe Ikea wants to run an advertisement with us where we can essentially do like a augmented reality style furniture to advertisement that, that users can interact with in there. You know, I, I'd say like that from like a standalone app point of view, that's kind of what's going on right now. But then, you know, you have Snapchat right now, which is doing a lot in terms of augmented reality face filters out there. I think I, I read recently that, you know, just based off of those features alone, they, they've gotten about like 13 million more users recently. A lot of these kind of like video chat type apps that, that are built off the top of technologies, which would enable us to essentially put 3D types of advertisements in there. I think I mentioned the, the esports industry, you know, that that's a huge industry that's starting to take off right now. And, you know, we really see opportunities, not just to put advertisements that the users can see, but also people that, that are watching and kind of like seeing what's happening with those events, you know, being able to kind of like hit a lot more people with those types of advertisements out there. It's really interesting how, how where where the notion of, of advertising is going. And as you're talking about that, I'm thinking now this really kind of opens up the doors for advertisers themselves in terms of getting people interacting with their advertisements. If, if you've got, you know, some sort of augmented reality game or, or, or something on your screen and then, you know, the ad itself can become what you're what you're using or what you're what you're interested in doing. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, this is kind of really random and just a weird thought I had, but uh, I listened to the Spit and Chicklets podcast a lot. They had a guest on talking about Ovechkin, how he just crushes Coke on the bench and stuff like that. And I always thought it'd be pretty fun if you were playing the, the next NHL 20, you know, 19 or 20, whatever it is. And you're on the bench and you, you're washing it and you could have Ovechkin drink a Coke or something on the bench while the game's going on. I just thought, That'd be cool. I don't know why I had that thought. Yeah. I was like, man, that would be a, that would be sick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, th there's certainly opportunities like that. And it, it's something that attracts me to this market because at the end of the day, as, as a marketer and as someone that's super into to the ad tech industry, you know, we, we don't like shitty ads. You know, we don't like those like pop-up ads. We don't like, you know, like poor quality advertisements that you don't, you can't really interact with or anything like that. You know, so I think that building this tech right now, it kind of leans towards like the very native, like engaging types of advertisements. Kind of, as you mentioned, you know, we can almost have like a decision tree behind our advertisements where, you know, depending on how the user interacts with it, you can, you know, do a certain action or pull up a certain, you know, like a button or a widget or something like that. Um, you know, you can, you can tie it into like geolocation, you know, so there could be more of like hyper-local type targeting that's involved with certain characters like that. You know, there, there's a ton of opportunities with it. And, you know, even on top of that, just collecting all the data and analytics associated with that, you know, you can really paint a, a nice a narrative for marketers out there. Mm -hmm. And also just at the end of the day, you know, marketers, they want to put their advertisements where they're going to get conversions from users. And when you take a look at some of these initial augmented reality and virtual reality ad campaigns out there, they're getting incredible user engagement, you know, so they're getting upwards of like 10 to 15% click through rates. And then on top of that, just like really good post engage, post click engagement, just because I think it's a, a relatively new type of ad placement out there. So, you know, there will be a diminishing returns associated with it, but I think people are willing to like play with it and mess with it and just engage with the marketer a little bit more as opposed to some of these like traditional forms of advertisements out there. Yeah, no, definitely. It's the, the new frontier, right? You know, everything's out for exploration and we're, you know, we're like kids in candy shops now, you know, everything's kind of just new and exciting and 
it's a, it's a big brand new world. And, you know, there, there's a fine line though, you know, because we also like as a company right now, it's when we first went to market and started to pitch investors out there and stuff like that, we, we almost took this kind of like minority report type approach to it where this is like this future world that has like wearable devices and like cool 3d interactions and stuff like that. And it's just realistically, that's like probably five to 10 years in the future right now, if not like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we kind of had to like take a step back from that and just be like, okay, what are like the actual applications that like people can use this towards right now? You know, what is the utility that users can get behind this? How can marketers start to easily start to transact in this? You know, how can we essentially make this work without tons of wearable devices and like billions and billions of people just consistently using uh, augmented reality apps out there? So yeah, you know, kind of had to update it a little bit like that. And look, you know, at the end of the day, the, the tech that we're building, you know, this, this should enable augmented reality XR type publishers out there just to start generating more revenue and they can take that revenue and start to build more content with it and start to use that towards more resources to hire more people. So, you know, we're really trying to build this business to be the the backbone of that market and to really be the, the monetization engine behind it and to, to grow that market, to organically grow with it. And then, yeah, you know, kind of like power the publisher revenue. They can even take that, the revenue that they generate and come back to our platform and act as an advertiser with that and then go out there and run more like app download type campaigns to get people to go out there and to start using their apps. It's very interesting. I'm actually learning quite a bit from this podcast alone. I, uh, yeah, same really, here. Yeah. Definitely not an expert in the field. Uh, don't pretend to be, but it's, it's great to hear somebody like you uh, chat about it, where it's going and, and the types of things that uh, companies like, like you have available for marketers. That's great. What uh, what kind of problems do you see in the ecosystem in in the in the foreseeable future um, that might just you know kind of you want want to bring to light? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so you let's take a look at like traditional mobile advertising right now. You have, you have a few things which are essentially plugging that industry. I'd say kind of the three things. Um, you know, data that's that's a big thing right now. You have in Europe, you have like GDPR. You have California, and it looks like New York is going to start having some regulations, where it just makes it a little bit harder to to target people out there. So it's definitely one hurdle that the industry is dealing with right now. Another one is uh, fraud. Um, you know, so you get publishers out there that might they might integrate an ad placement into their app, but then they might not actually show that ad to the users, you know, so you could have advertisers which are purchasing the advertisement, but then they're not actually showing that to users. So, you know, obviously it's a very good user experience because they're not seeing advertisements and the publishers making money off of that. But then, you know, you're not actually showing the advertiser Um, on the flip portion of that, you know, you have advertisers which are, you know, claiming to be legitimate advertisers, but then they basically bait and switch people to more of like auto redirect campaigns, which will just like, automatically click the advertisement and take the user to some like shady website out there or you know they'll slip in like a porn advertisement or some like super inappropriate advertisement i remember uh, we had some, some pretty egregious porn advertisements come through on uh, the mopub exchange when when i was working over there and ultimately led to, to mopub partnering with a few uh, pretty interesting third-party companies that they're working to, to solve that issue right now and then I'd, I'd say like the third issue which i consistently see coming up is with uh, viewability and so viewability kind of like plays into my second point, but just like making sure that users can actually see the advertisement on the app. And and this isn't just from like apps hiding the, the ads point of view. This is more so, 
you know, you might have an advertisement that appears like 25% appears to the user. You know, they're like scrolling down on a page or something like that, or you'll have an ad that it'll load in a different section of the app, but the user just hasn't gotten to that section yet. So it might register an impression, but then, you know, just the user doesn't end up really seeing that advertisement. So you see there, there's a few third-party companies which are kind of like stepping in right now to, to solve the viewability issues behind this. And when I look at my company right now, what do we even do for viewability? You know, because we're using a camera-enabled perspective in that sense. So, you know, obviously you have an advertisement in front of a user. We can come up with some kind of definition as to, you know, maybe it has to be on screen for 50% and after one second we'll have an impression tracker fire or something like that. But then, you know, what do you do if the advertisement appears like, 10 feet in front of the user versus 100 feet in front of the user versus like 50 feet or appears on like, you know, 180 degrees away from the user and stuff like that. So we're also, we're just, we're trying to use and come up with kind of like our own proprietary ways to, to measure impressions and engagements and, you know, ways that we can uh, interact with this, this 3d environment basically. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of hurdles and stuff to, to get through and, you know, as, just as it is with anything and, you know, there's going to be, ongoing issues but um now you you were kind of saying that uh when you were with mopub there there was a few uh interesting uh aspects that 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 kind of came up and and you know like with clickbait or or something that's you know redirecting you to somewhere else that you know obviously have no interest in watching or doing but you know they they got you um what what is some of the uh the more kind of i don't know funny anecdotal stuff or any of the other like the real kind of bullshit that you you saw when you when you were in that uh you know that uh, whether it was kind of Mopub or, or Mopub through Twitter, any stories, any, any kind of funny things that pop out? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, let's see. So there was, there was this one, they were a Eastern European publisher, but despite being based out of Eastern Europe, they all lived in like penthouses, like Manhattan penthouses, basically. I, I don't know. We got their addresses somehow and just basically looked up where they lived and we're pretty interested to see that they lived over there. But this publisher was, they, they had about like, 20 apps they're working with and they were monetizing those using using the mopa platform and all that and they're actually doing pretty well as a publisher they're one of the the top publishers that i was working with back then but they were just super weird and kind of like interesting uh, apps they're working with you know kind of like downloading youtube videos and kind of like weird kind of like semi-legal type apps out there that our policy team wasn't that happy about but they were just legitimate enough to be permitted onto the platform in that sense there's kind of two things that happen with these guys to begin with the first was that so you know kind of going back to what you brought up earlier about you know if you're using like a twitter or linkedin or something like that you can check the checkmark box and that'll basically extend campaigns from those platforms over to the third-party networks so twitter had its own version of this which is called the twitter audience platform and so tap, tap is what it is for short. Someone on the tap team, they mistakenly trafficked a campaign. It was supposed to be, I believe, a 30K campaign, but they accidentally trafficked it as a 300K Ooh. campaign in the system. It just so happened that this was a this campaign was targeted to the Saudi Arabian market of all places. And, you know, trust me, I, I have no idea what are the big apps and stuff like that over in Saudi Arabia, but you know, apparently this this campaign was targeted towards all of them, and it just so happened that this publisher had a ton of advertising inventory that was based out of the Saudi Arabian market. So basically, that entire three hundred thousand dollar fuck up on their end 
went to this publisher specifically. Oh, no. Despite that it was like programmatic advertising and everything, it was just, you know, the way that the algorithms work, they're basically just like, here's a ton of ad inventory in the Saudi Arabian market, which, you know, I, I doubt there are that many other MOPA publishers that had inventory over there. So it just defaulted to serving that entire campaign onto those guys' apps. So, you know, they quickly made a ton of money off of that. But then we started to get a few of our, our demand side partners, our advertiser partners, who they, they worked with third-party fraud solutions and some stuff like that. They started to, to ping us that they were noticing some, some weird user behavior that was on these the apps, so, you know, specifically from this, this Eastern European company that I'm talking about right now. And what they noticed was that these apps – not only were they hiding the impressions or hiding the advertisements from the users, but to protect against that, because if you hide your advertisements from users, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of impressions and you can make some money off of that. But at the end of the day, the advertising partners are going to start to notice that you have terrible, like basically no click through rate behind that because, you know, users just can't click on that ad. So they'll end up like blocking those publishers or, you know, algorithmically pushing their budgets to other publishers out there. But these, these guys, not only were they hiding their advertisements, but they were using basically an automated click system to click on the ads that were hidden behind the app. So it just seemed like that much more of a legit app in that sense. Luckily, the, the advertiser partners, they noticed, because basically what happened is they noticed that there was one IP address, basically, that was just like, clicking constantly and they just they thought that it was super weird that there was one user out there that was just putting like thousands and thousands of clicks for this uh, suite of apps basically so you know we quickly did an investigation and you know quickly came to the surface that, that these guys were doing kind of like fraudulent solutions behind this and it just you know it was, it was a pretty big racket on their end and the funny thing is, you know, we ended up we, – we blocked them as a publisher and all that, but they, they got to keep that 300000 that we, we accidentally spent on them. And they had the audacity to sue Twitter wow. <laughs> on the top of that, and luckily nothing ended up coming out from that. But I just hope that there's not some like Eastern European mafia person after me right now. <laughs> <laughs> you've, made some, you've made some enemies somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty funny, man. I mean, uh, I imagine there's a lot of a lot of that shady shit that happens behind the scenes. And and again, like, I mean, it's only if you, you know, you've got the right team in place to, to really notice these things. And then I imagine those, you know, those those subsequent investigations would take months to, to you know, to track down all that information. Right. And, and, and you know, actually... yeah, I mean, it's I mean, you know, when you're a smaller company, it's easier to do some of those. But like Twitter as an organization, you know, we had to get like our policy team involved with it and the legal team got involved with it. And then like the whole engineering side of it was running tests behind that and then working with uh, the demand side partners to like basically triage with the third parties that they were working with. You know, it was something where the investigative process behind this, it probably took like a month, a month and a half. Yeah. So in that time period, the publisher probably made a decent amount more revenue. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, that's... <laughs> Wild, absolutely wild, and it's, and then this is the you know this is the stuff that people would have no clue about. You know, this is you know the the, the behind the scenes inside. Oh, yeah, absolutely, in, you know, yeah. and like you're say you're like a, a Nike or like an individual advertiser out there, you have no idea that this is happening because you basically you work with like an agency 
And then that agency will work with ad networks, trading desks, demand side platforms, you know, various like third party ad techs that they can plug into these bigger ecosystems where, you know, they can access, you know, 50 to 100,000 apps and mobile websites and stuff like that. You know, so if you're Nike, you're basically you're just getting like an email report from some agency person being like, yeah, your click through rates are pretty good right now. <laughs> but like you have no idea that you've been serving on this like shady Belarusian download <laughs> app. You know, <laughs> it's totally true. Um, and speaking of that, actually, uh, if if you if let's say I'm I'm an, I'm a company like Nike or you know I'm I'm another uh, brand that's looking into digging deeper as as we progress further into the the digital age and and across different various um, outlets and, and advertising vehicles, what are your best tips and tricks, kind of uh, for someone you know a publisher looking to you know get some get some good hard facts, good information. What, what, what are they, what do they want to know? Yeah, definitely. You know, so I definitely, you know, say I was Nike. First of all, I'd want to know like which are the, the technology partners that the agency is working with. So the demand side platforms, the ad networks, um, you know, whoever's basically pushing that ad, the, those advertisements into the market, depending on who the partners are, they all have different bells and whistles behind them. So, you know, some of these DSPs and demand side platforms is what DSP stands for. Some of them might be focusing on retargeting users. Some of them might be focused on hyper-local targeting behind people. So if I have a campaign that I want to make sure, like, hits people in a 100-meter radius based off of, like, GPS coordinates or something like that, I'd make sure that they're working with the right partner that has the right technology to do something like that. I'd want just consistent reporting coming through, seeing kind of like site-level reporting out there, what I mentioned, you know, seeing that apps and the websites and even like the specific types of uh, placements that you're putting your ads onto, you know, from, from an advertiser point of view, you definitely like AB test the shit out of everything, you know? So you want to make sure that you, know, you have different creatives that you're working with. You have different, um, like dimensions, you know, whether it's like 300 by 250 or 320 by 480 or 320 by 50, I'd encourage people to just you know, not just like focus on only mobile in-app programmatic, you know, I'd encourage you to also test out like mobile web and like the desktop uh, universe and like connected TV. And, you know, now that Artlane is becoming a thing, you know, like XR advertising, just to, you know, collect different data points, see where your users are, see where you're getting traction from these campaigns out there, and then just start to, to reallocate your budget towards the places that are working. Um, you know, I, another thing out there is just, you know, if you if you see that your ads are consistently delivering on certain apps, download those apps, you know, see what your ad looks like in there. You know, are there latency issues? You know, does it take two seconds for your advertisement to appear in there? Maybe you need a little bit of a tighter integration behind that. You know, is is it appearing like half cut off? Is, are you seeing weird kind of metrics? You know, is there a zero percent click through rate? Is there a hundred percent click through rate? You know, are there kind of like weird metrics that kind of make you think? Is there something not working correctly right now? And just really dig into that, see what's working, what isn't working, arbitrage all these systems out there, and just take a data-driven approach. No, totally. And that, that's, I was going to say, I mean, I'm da- data is some data, data. It's its everything that, you know, is is should be in every marketer's playbook now is is in making those informed decisions and utilizing as much data as you possibly can. Like you say, A, a B test the shit out of everything. Never be content or satisfied with how, you know, one system or, um, you know, a bunch of different various um, wheels are spinning, but you got to 
make sure that it's it's you're constantly checking and and it's 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 a never-ending process am i right i mean it's not like you can just flip a switch and say okay it's everything's good to go you know everything's running great this week well next week is a completely different bag of apples altogether right yeah there, there's constantly issues there's constantly like technical stuff happening you know it, it's funny because like programmatic advertising is kind of like hailed as this automatic like super hyper efficient way of purchasing and transacting advertisements out there but there's still so many human elements that go into it. You know, it's just publishers out there making sure that the right DSPs have whitelisted them and that, you know, they might have like blocked an advertiser two years ago. It might have been like someone that didn't even work at the company and blocked an advertiser two years ago. The new people didn't even realize that advertisers blocked. They unblocked that. It unleashes, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars more in revenue per month or something like that. You know, just people like trafficking things incorrectly in there because like, at the end of the day, these are automated buying platforms where people can still, you know, like what I mentioned, put an extra zero on the end of their campaigns or do incorrect geotargeting or incorrect kind of like user targeting behind it. You know, so there's still very much human elements to it. And even from like a monetization point of view, there's so much you can do just by like picking up the phone and talking to your vendor partners and being like, hey, you know, I'm not happy with the CPM that I'm getting right now. What can you do about this? You know, literally take 10 seconds to say something like that. Yeah. And they'll have an account management team take a look into it, give you optimizations. And, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll make a little bit more money per month based off of that. You know, work with your, your demand side partners that, you know, whether they're the DSPs or the ad networks, you know, you can talk to them and be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the, the campaigns that you guys are running on my ad inventory right now. But I also, I noticed you guys are running this other Nike campaign and this Reebok campaign. And I haven't seen any of those advertisements on my app right now. And they're like, oh, you know, we just we forgot to whitelist you or, oh, that that advertiser doesn't want to work with you because of X, Y, Z reason. And then you're like, OK, well, can I fix X, Y, Z reason to open up a digital budget with that? And just, you know, constantly navigating it like that and just seeing where you can unearth more and more revenue, just, you know, making sure that you're not working with people that are going to like screw you over and steal your data and give you shitty quality ads. Yeah. You know, very much a human element. No, that's that's great. And as as it should be, you know, keep those lines of communication open. As you say, you know, it's it's it doesn't take it takes but a moment to pick up the phone, you know, call up the company you're working with and and make sure that, you know, like just ask questions and just, you know, um probe them a bit and and try and find out some information. And on that note, I I do uh, you know, working in advertising like we work with a lot of third-party companies, you know, uh trying to generate, you know, uh, advertisements um to get obviously people to, to our website and, you know, and, 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 and nurture some leads. Um, but I find with a lot of um, companies, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, or even, you know, a lot of the smaller players out there and communicating to them, like actually finding a human on or, or a number that you can actually call and speak to a human. I find that's becoming more and more difficult you know, as we progress further into a digital age and we're all online all the time, it's almost like it's this, like I'm trying to pull teeth, trying to find a phone number and actually connect with a human being on the other end of that line, as opposed to going through some automated system. Like I have to, I've phoned up, I don't recommend anyone ever doing this, but I phoned up the United States Postal Service the other day and trying to uh, get some information from them about opening up an account and you just can't get through to a human being. And I know that's kind of like the, the U.S. Postal Service. Everyone knows that the Postal Service is not the place you want to go to actually talk to people. If you want to go wait in line and, you know, just just, you know, pull your hair out and just 
have a have a heck of a time. Um, that's where you go for that. But on that kind of same level, I, I, I we we were working another company I was working for an e-commerce brand. We were connected with uh, with Wayfair, and Wayfair is a great company out of out of Boston there, and they had a wonderful support team. Um, you'd phone them up, and they would answer within moments. And they've still got their support number on there, but they haven't had their support line for months now. They just dropped it out of the blue one day, and I assume you know it's a budgeting thing, and it just costs less money to you know have if you don't have live people there anymore and you'd open up some sort of like chat bot service or whatever it is, but trying to articulate a problem through email or through text or on a, on a, on a chat system is so daunting at, at, at the, at the best of times. And when you're really, you know, having issues, I'm just wondering when you guys go, go, go to market, are you guys going to have uh, like a support support for, for, for your publishers or for, for people like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so my thoughts are that more client services equals a good thing, and that's something that you take a look at what what Mopub went to market with. Mopub was kind of like notorious for having the best client services team out there, just working consultatively with with their publishers and demand side partners, and having really great relationships like that. You know, we we worked with some publishers that would generate upwards of like 150k per day in revenue, and they still couldn't get in touch with someone on their on their Google account team over there. You know. So lots of those publishers, you know, they maintain their Mopub relationship, even if Mopub wasn't making a lot of money for them or getting the highest CPMs or anything like that, just because they knew that they can get in touch with somebody on the Mopub team, have a good conversation with them. The Mopub person is not going to load them up with a bunch of bullshit or like send over a bunch of articles over to them and kind of just like say like, read these and then we're done with it basically. So, you know, I learned from, from that point of view and it's something that I want to bring to my company right now. I think it's something that, you know, even kind of like our initial, like we're going to market with a private alpha right now. And I'm already trying to instill some of these best practices, you know, just talking to our early partners. Like if they write something over to us, like immediately writing back to them. If we don't have an answer, telling them that we'll follow up with them after every phone call, you know, making sure that we have all sent an email that has all the action items associated with it. have kind of like our agendas with everything in-person meetings as much as we possibly can, you know, being good to our partners, kind of like rewarding our initial partners with good deal terms with everything that's kind of like good faith tech partnerships in that sense. And yeah, you know, it's a culture that I definitely want to bring to, to the Arlene team. And I've seen it be pretty successful with companies out there. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I mean, bring, bring, bring what you know works and, and just yeah. roll from that. Honestly, it's been fantastic having you on the show Colin I've, I've learned a great deal and, and it's actually kind of I want to read some more about this as, as I get home tonight so I can you know further my own knowledge and, and obviously everything we, 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 we do on the show as although we're you know we're, we're doing a podcast to talk about the bullshit side of marketing it's it's picking up these these fantastic points and these you know this this information that that helps us as as marketers as as, as you know professional advertisers so it's I, invaluable information, uh, Colin. Really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to chat with us here on the Marketing Malarkey Podcast. Yeah, thank, awesome. thank you very much, Colin. Um, so uh, as we do say here on the show, uh, the proof is in the pudding. Everything else is just bullshit. Marketing uh, Malarkey has been brought to you by our uh, our sponsor and, and the studio where we record our podcast, Papa Podcasting, with the help of Lisa today. And uh, JP, uh, they're a wonderful team here. If you're uh, interested in starting a podcast and unsure of where to start, we highly recommend checking them out at popupodcasting.ca. My name is Hartley Parents, joined by Kyle Turk. As always, thank you for listening.